Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, T.K. Coleman. How do you do from the king of Kalamazoo? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that laugh you hear there, of course, Malabama's in the studio. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team here as well, and we have a very special guests in the studio today. I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. You know, I used to be an obese person and I've often, I often get questions about minimizing fat or minimizing obesity, decluttering my weight. And how does that relate to minimalism? We're going to dive deep into that today. Joining us in the studio right now is Dr. Sean O'Mara. Hey everybody. Great to be here. Uh, Welcome. I'm so grateful you decided to spend this time with us. Our show is a listener-driven show, so we're going to dive right into some questions. By the way, big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because, say it with me, y'all, advertisement sucks. Yes, they do. TK made a strategic uh, drink of his water there. He's terrified to say advertisements <laughs> suck. He's, he's, waiting principle. For, he's waiting for a sponsor. That's right. <laughs> if I say that, someone's going to have to pay me a lot of good money. <laughs> uh, Dr. Sean, we got some questions here. We're going to start with our callers. If you have a question or a comment for our show, you can give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording right from your phone to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Diana. Hello, Josh, Ryan, and TK. My name is Diana, and I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Is there a direct connection between minimalism and weight loss? How has minimalism allowed you to let go of the weight? Alternatively, in what ways does clinging negatively impact the body? Thank you. Diana, what a thoughtful question. I really see there are two parts to it here. I want to hand it over to Dr. Sean O'Mara here in a moment because he's really the expert with respect to this. We're going to be talking about letting go or minimizing fat, especially the bad kinds of fat. And we might even identify the good kinds of fat as well. And what I've realized over the last 12, 13, 14 years to simplify is to let go of the habits, the rituals, the commitments, sometimes the people, and the things that no longer serve us. We recently did a episode about food clutter with our friend Dr. Paul Saladino, and in that episode, he talked about the four foods to remove. He talked about seed oils and high fructose corn syrup and artificial sweeteners and and certain plants from the diet that may be inflammatory. And he also talked about the four foods to include in your diet. I think Dr. Omara, he will go a little bit farther here and and probably even disagree a little bit with some of Paul's stance on, on a few things. And I think that's great. Having some disagreements on a show like this helps us illuminate what the truth might be. So, Dr. Sean, I'd love to start by talking about different kinds of fat and their implications. If you're watching the video version of the podcast, 
We're going to be using some images today, and this is the first image here. We'll put it up on the screen. If you're just listening to the audio version, though, you can check the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast, and we'll have links to all of these images. Of course, if you subscribe to the email version of the podcast, we'll send these show notes directly to your inbox. Dr. Sean, let's talk about this first image that we have here that folks can see on their screen. And can we talk about the different kinds of fat? Sure. So <clears throat> right away in this first image, uh, this uh, for the listening and viewing audience benefit shows uh, six series of uh, MRI scans that were taken over a period of about 35 weeks. And the interesting thing was in this particular series of MRI scans, we are evaluating visceral fat, which is this dangerous inflammatory fat in the middle. And we were purposing in a study funded by the National Science Foundation to try to identify strategies and biomarkers for reversing chronic disease. So we honed in on visceral fat and we're asking people to do a variety of different strategies in their life to help get rid of visceral fat to measure its impact on chronic disease that they were having. So in this series, you can see in the middle is this red kind of pink colored substance that's right in the center of the abdomen called visceral fat. And the outside is fat uh, in the periphery that we call subcutaneous fat. The interesting thing that happened in this particular series with this uh, individual subject that we're studying was he was reluctant to do all the other strategies. So uh, normally we probably would have asked him to uh, not be a part of the study, but for whatever reason, kind of these, these mistakes sometimes happen in science. We allowed him to stay in the study and he only did one thing. He cut out processed foods. So he wouldn't exercise. He would not do any of the other strategies. And at the time, I remember feeling very frustrated with this guy. But in the end, he ended up providing science and us in particular this tremendous benefit because we could see now what happened exclusively when you cut out processed foods from a diet. So we didn't have to worry about what's called confounding. In other words, had we had him exercise, we would be trying to figure out was it the fact that he cut out processed foods or was it the fact that he exercised or he did a sauna or he did cold showers? So in this case, the only thing he did was cut out processed foods. And in the series of six, uh, six scans over 35 weeks, you can see the dramatic reduction in that redness. So his visceral fat left, but check out the shape of his abdomen. So he goes from having this barrel-shaped belly sticking out and he looks, he's 68 years old. So he looks like he's got a dad bod. And in that last image, he now has a shape of like a collegiate athlete, like some wow. person in their 20s. So big, big change over 35 weeks. And that's why we really use MRI a lot in our studies for the National Science Foundation, because it gives such powerful insight into this dangerous substance, visceral fat, that almost nobody knows about. And part of the reason is it's not taught in medical school. So that's that's part of the problem that uh, your, your provider of information that you most trust, typically people are, are brought up in a, in a healthcare system to trust their physician. They themselves don't even know about visceral fat. So an MRI, if you're able to get one or a CT scan, um, provides you that kind of insight uh, into this substance that very few people really know about. So I'm super excited to be here to uh, bring some attention to it. I think what's going to happen here is we're going to go through several more scans, MRIs, other visuals throughout this episode. I just want to highlight something, getting back directly to Diana's question here. 
What we're really talking about here is living with less. We often talk about that with respect to material possessions, but also what is the optimal way to live? Well, the optimal way to live is in a state that is free of disease or dysfunction. We see a lot of dysfunction in our lives. Dr. Sean, I don't know if you know this, but the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And that is a manifestation of something else. It's not that the material possessions are inherently wrong or bad or evil. And I want to be clear about this. As a formerly obese person, I used to weigh 80 pounds more than I weigh now. It's not evil or bad if you have excess weight on your body. In fact, it's not even about excess weight. It's about having excess fat, specifically visceral fat, that leads to chronic disease. 90% of the American population is metabolically unhealthy. And we have 70% of people who are considered to be obese or overweight, and that number continues to climb. And a lot of that has to do not with what we, uh, not just because we're simply overeating, but what we're overeating on, the highly processed foods. And you talked about with this scan, and that's how impressive this is, simply cutting out one thing. All processed foods led to a dramatic improvement in this person's health. So, Diana, I think I think ultimately that's where we start here. We're talking about letting go of the things that no longer mm-hmm. serve us. It could be a ritual. It could be a type of food. It could be a material possession. It could be a person. If it's not serving us, it's okay to let it go. I want to tune in to Facebook. We have a question here from Dave. I am five foot six and 132 pounds, yet I still have a significant amount of belly fat and fat around my face. How do I minimize the excess fat without trying to go stupidly low in actual weight? I can't believe that in my mid 40s, I need to be below 130 pounds. Now, Dr. Sean, I know you'll probably address this a little bit differently. I want to put a few things here on the screen first. First, I want to show image number two here. This is you. And this is a picture of your face at age 48 and then a picture of you at age 59 here. And what we see on the screen is an appreciable difference, a much healthier person on the right side, even though two things, A, you're considerably older in this picture, even though you don't look older in this picture, but also you actually weigh more. And it seems to me what we often do is we are measuring the wrong things. If you want to lose weight, cut off your leg and you'll instantly walk out. Well, I guess you'll hop out of here weighing less. But Dr. Sean, talk to me about this image and then also image three. We've got something else where you, uh, we, we, we can see an appreciable difference in, in how you've changed personally. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, you know, minimizing uh, what uh, what is really uh, important. So the MRI is sort of like this magic looking glass. It allows you to focus and help you make decisions like what you can jettison and what you should be building. So I love the MRI for being able to do that. So one of the things you want to jettison are things that you're not aware of. You got clutter around your house. You got clutter inside your your own house, your internal house, your body, but you don't know about it unless you get scanned to see it. So the MRI allows you to see this very da- dangerous substance, visceral fat. And one of the places it manifests actually is in your face. So it's one of the most noticeable places, but it manifests throughout the body. So uh, right up front, you can see the change in my face where I'm 48. I have a lot of inflammation, even though I weigh less, Uh, During the interval between those two photographs, I jettisoned dangerous inflammatory visceral fat, and you can see it 
in my face. So I got a leaner face on my image to the right. And then the third image, you can see this profile lateral view. You can see the impact of that visceral fat once it leaves. So interestingly, one of the manifestations of visceral fat is it degrades your muscle performance. So it helps to, first of all, you lose muscle mass. So with a condition called sarcopenia or medical frailty, we start losing our valuable good stuff in our house, you know, your muscle. So that one you want to retain. So when you when you want to have a more minimalist lifestyle, you got to ask what really is important and hold on to that stuff. And what isn't important, you, you become aware you get rid of. So muscle is really good. And it's not just the amount of muscle, but how well it's performing. So in that first image uh, on the left, you can see my belly sticking out because interestingly in that photograph, I don't have much visceral fat, but what I do have is a lot of influence from the former visceral fat that weakened my gut. So the dad bod is really weakness where your muscles in your anterior part of your abdomen can't even hold your guts in. So were you to do um, a surgical procedure and remove that visceral fat right away, your guts still would be pushing out because your muscles can't hold it in. So that second image shows my abdomen has become much flatter. So for the point of the audience listening, you know, really look at what really matters inside of your body. It's not just losing weight. Like Joshua said, you could do that chopping off a particular limb, but you want to jettison the stuff that's harmful to you and hold on the stuff that's beneficial. And so visceral fat is bad fat, but there's also good fat, which is, um, subcu is superficial subcutaneous fat. So a little layer of fat uh, just on the outside, we've seen in studies is very protective. Um, and another good fat is brown adipose tissue. We call it brown fat. And that one comes from cold showers and uh, lifestyle can can help to increase that. So, you know, the, the opportunity to educate, you know, the minimalist um, podcast audience and, and have people understand that not all fat is the same. Not all weight is the same. You know, you maybe you're gaining weight, but you're gaining good tissue. Maybe you're losing weight, but you're losing bad tissue. And that's where the MRI, I think, is so helpful. I think that measurements aren't helpful if we're measuring the wrong thing. If we simply are looking at weight, it doesn't tell me the full picture. Weight of what? Because you, I first heard about you from, we were talking about Dr. Anthony Chafee. And uh, I guess on certain body mass indexes, he might be considered obese because we're measuring it the wrong way. Now, he probably has 8% body fat or and he's a really big athletic guy. But if you just measure weight, it's not really telling you the full picture. Yeah, that is such a great uh, point. And so, you know, one of the things that uh, is impressive about, uh, there are many things impressive about our country is uh, uh, American commerce and uh, Maybe we could uh, get into that. That's really interesting. It's a good analogy for biology to understand medical health, what's going on in, in corporate America. I'd love to get back to Dave's question here directly. So what he's saying here is, hey, look, I weigh 132 pounds, and I can't believe that in my mid-40s, I need to be below 130 pounds. And the fascinating thing is I see a lot of people in their 30s and 40s when their their bodies start to change in interesting ways. It's many years of, of accumulating visceral fat. And now all of a sudden I feel like, oh, I, I'm like him. He's like, I've even though I'm within this healthy limit, I have a fat face or I have a protruding stomach. And you see that in your images that you've shown here. But 
you've also shown that it's reversible. Up on the screen here, we have this picture of Dr. Sean. I hope I can look that great tomorrow <laughs> at age 42. <laughs> But holy moly, man. Um, so this is you, I guess, a couple of years ago, approaching age 60 at that point and look like a 21-year-old athlete. But the good news is you didn't always look like this way. You didn't always walk around looking like Michael Phelps. And that's clear in the previous picture here. So maybe we can give Dave some hope here. Yeah. So one of the things I would tell Dave to do as my favorite form of exercise is uh, is what we've done ancestral, ancestrally for 4 million years. The two things that kept <clears throat> our, uh, keep, kept individuals in the species the longest and also equated to the best quality of life were two things, and that is fighting and sprinting. But fighting is something hard to really advocate as a physician. You know, I, we joked within my, our, our startup that we can have clients go to a bar and, and get in a fight and actually help to optimize them. But uh, <laughs> we, we stayed away from that, and you can exercise in a very intense manner. But the second thing is something every, you know, everybody listening could consider doing, that is sprinting. So sprinting, when you think about it, is a perfect minimalist activity. So instead of doing the more maximal kind of activity where you're doing long distance running, I started embracing the age of 48 sprinting. And so sprinting will help Dave and anybody listening uh, that's in their 30s and 40s uh, who wants to jettison some some of this excess uh, lifestyle that they've accumulated, excess bad fat, uh, visceral fat. If you sprint, that will help in the fastest and the easiest. And the reason is, when you sprint, it releases a, a messaging molecule called myokines and another uh, messaging molecule called LACFI, which is a combination between lactate and phenylalanine. And I hope that's the last time I have to say that because that's a tough word. <laughs> but LACFI is the easiest, easier way to, to express it. And interestingly, they looked at a study, 10 different forms of exercise, and they studied these different forms of exercise for which produces the most LACFI. And right at the top, was sprinting. The next one below it was weightlifting resistance training. And at the bottom of the 10 forms of exercise was distance running. Running. So sprinting seconds of maximum intensity exercise is really the key for Dave and other people that want to burn bad fat and at the same time, build muscle. So nothing burns more fat, bad fat, and nothing puts on more beneficial, uh, you know, minimalist type of muscle uh, than sprinting. And I look at this picture uh, of you, and a lot of that has to do with A, removing the processed foods and not cheating, and then B, sprinting. A and I think what we often when we see a picture like this, like, oh man, it must be three hours in the gym every day and and he must be running five miles a day. But what you're saying is, and I think this is actually tackles Sarah's question here, what's one simple exercise I can do to become fit without spending hours at the gym every day? And what you're illuminating here, Dr. Sean, is the simple answer is rarely the easy answer. Now, I honestly think it's easier to sprint than it is to go on 10-mile runs. And you've got me and my wife doing regular sprinting every other day now. Awesome. And it's been a tremendous, after you get past that first little hump, it has been a tremendous way for me to become much more fit. Now, my wife's an athlete, and even she has experienced tremendous improvements in her fitness from sprinting every other day. 
Yeah, no, sprinting is such, such an optimizing form of exercise. And I've averaged my uh, exercise patterns over the past uh, really 12, 13 years. Um, I've averaged about uh, five to 10 minutes uh, once every two or three days. So I really have minimized my exercise. But when I exercise, it's very intense. And, uh, you know, it's much more efficient. So nothing in my mind, I'm not aware of any other form of exercise that will get you more short of breath and give you a higher yield than sprinting in just a few seconds. So um, Joshua and, and, and your wife, you've, you guys figured that out. And yeah. if you look um, on social media, people that follow this promotion of uh, getting rid of visceral fat and adopted a lifestyle where they've incorporated sprinting, there's just tremendous testimonies surrounding that. So I, I think the establishment is promoted to the detriment of probably individuals, uh, too much running and too much exercise. Uh, just recently in the past uh, week, a study came out showing that you can actually grow muscle in just nine seconds of working out. And the sweet spot appears to be just that, three seconds, three times a week gives the same thing as doing three seconds, five times a week <laughs> and no benefit if you only do it twice a week. So uh, a measurable increase in, in a very short interval period of time, just by doing maximum bicep, maximum intensity bicep for three seconds. And you just, you do that once, three times a week. So the more we study the shorter in interval and the maximum intensity form of exercise, either with regard to sprinting or resistance training, the more benefit we see. So I, I'm going to speak to your audience. The bigger danger I feel is uh, maximally exercising too much durational exercise, either working out for too long or or doing too, too much endurance exercise. So if you think ancestrally for 4 million years, it was brief, it was intense. So struggles, when no one went to the gym, it was a, a life and death usual fight trying to overcome, pray that you needed to feed yourself and your family. So it was quick and it was brutal. And it was over fast. It did not go on for a long period of time. And the same thing for sprinting. We didn't. We wouldn't have had a purpose for go out and jogging. I know. I see these these accounts trying to explain you know distance running from the perspective of hunting. But you know, it would have been the sprint to catch it finally and uh, to get away from predators uh, that that kept us in the gene pool, the survival, the fittest. So um, sprinting and very very brief, intense, maximally intense. I call it M I E, maximally intensive exercise, gives you your greatest return, and it's within the reach of almost everybody listening. Dr. Sean, um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw Josh walking into the studio. And I had just parked my car and he was kind of like two blocks away. I wanted to chase him down and tackle him. But then I thought, <laughs> ah, this is L.A. That's probably not a good idea. But what you're saying is I should I should have done that. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I should have yeah. sprinted, tackled him and wrestled him to the ground. This is why I love his YouTube channel. Dr. Sean, your YouTube channel, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. I encourage everyone to check it out because you talk uh, not just about sprinting or you talk about different types of foods and and what foods to remove. And, and the thing that we've learned as minimalists and have known for a long time is Often it's what you don't do is more important than what you actually do. And you don't want to eat the processed foods. You don't need to over-exercise or over-exert yourself to, to the point of hurting yourself or maybe hurting your optimal performance, right? And, and also, like, you might just, you might find that you are disincentivized if you feel that 
oh, I have to work out two hours a day every day. I'm just going to throw my hands up and say no with the sprinting stuff. I mean, I've been doing, I've been mixing it up a little bit. I'll do six seconds and I'll do 10 seconds and then I'll do 12 seconds and I'll do four seconds. And, and by the time I do three or four rounds of that, I am wiped out. I talk about running out of breath, but also like, oh, I feel like I've actually exerted myself, right? Mm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's so wonderfully optimizing. You feel better. But here's an interesting thing. Uh, um, I define health by uh, how you look and how you perform. So if you're listening today and you've never thought about sprinting, take a picture of your face, a good one, before you sprint. And then repeat it after you finish sprinting and look at the interval change. Your face will become more attractive because of the nitric oxide, the myokines, and what, what gets relief. So it really optimizes your appearance and your performance. So that's something you can see in just in seconds of uh, sprinting a few, few sprints. You'll have this beneficial uh, impact on your face that you can see and, and track by photography. We have, we have one more uh, image here I'd like to put up on the screen real quick. Image number four. This is an image that shows a profound loss of visceral fat in the abdomen of a 58-year-old who just stopped distance running and switched to sprinting. And this is just a, a two-month change. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So in the image on the left, this guy um, is filled with visceral fat on his image in his left, and he runs a company. And uh, so he had been doing um, our strategies for the National Science Foundation, and there wasn't much interval change. So I had to ask him, why do you still have all this visceral fat? So I ran through the big, big contributors that we often see in people that um, are having uh, uh, visceral fat or ref being refractory where they can't eliminate. And that is uh, stress, uh, alcohol drinking, uh, poor sleep. Uh, cheating, where they're eating processed foods, especially processed carbohydrates. And he assured me he had none of those. So the fifth thing that we query our client uh, patients about is, are you doing some sort of durational or endurance exercise? So this guy was, he was doing 10 miles a day running five Ooh, times a, a week, a day. Wow. So that's 50 miles a week. And he loved it. He was he was addicted, and he refused to stop. And so we had to threaten him with uh, <laughs> with being kicked out of the study. No more free MRIs. No more access to uh, <laughs> these strategies. And so he 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 agreed to stop running, and he immediately started uh, sprinting in place. And look at the dramatic change in this guy in less than two months. He eliminated almost all his visceral fat, but look how much he grew muscle. Mm. And when he came back, the MRI tech I remember said, "Sean, you're not gonna believe this guy. He's now jacked." And when I looked at his MRI images and he walked in the room, he was visibly larger in his muscularity in two months. I had to push him up against the wall and beg him to not mess with our science and ask him if he was taking steroids and some sort of anabolics or something that was responsible. But that, so uh, two things, one, it's sprinting, but two, it's the elimination of endurance exercise. So, you know, for the analogy show, it's like shedding stuff from your life that you don't need getting more to what is really efficient and what, what is most valuable and sprinting. So he quit running the distance running, started sprinting and look at the tremendous benefit he got. Dr. Sean, I know this is probably so obvious to everyone, but let's do a com like a complete idiot's guide to sprinting for just one minute. 
Because I even heard you say he was sprinting in play. So, okay, that's new to me. We can do that. You don't have to worry about where you sprint. Let's talk about that. But also, what does it look like? Run as fast as I can until I get tired and then I'm done for the day? Or do I need to go a certain amount of seconds and push myself? What does that look like? Oh, TK, that's so good. So first of all, if you're older, uh, anybody uh, from the 50s and their 50s and above, uh, you really want to be careful because it's not your age. I'm 60. I can go out and tear it up and I do not have to worry about this one thing, which is a muscle strain. But you have accumulated so much visceral fat that your your muscles and your tendons are now vulnerable to getting a very serious strain that could keep you from sprinting for weeks, months, or even more or even potentially years. So if you are older, you need to be very, very cautious about slowly working with a trainer and starting to sprint. But sprinting basically is what you used to do as a kid, maximum effort running. So as fast as you can. But the injury happens typically when you accelerate. So I tell my clients when I'm, and I videotape them, I tell them to accelerate very, very slowly until they reach maximum effort. And once they've reached that maximum effort, maximum speed, I tell them to hold it for about six to, to maybe 15 seconds. And I tell them to mix it up because ancestrally, this is what kept you in the gene pool, kept you alive and what allowed you to bring home the bacon, bring home meat, is how fast you could sprint and and uh, increase your survival and the quality of your life. Mm -hmm. So nature would do that through um, variability. You know, we we want to avoid muscle memory when you go and work out and do the same. You, you want to avoid doing the same kind of routines. Same thing with sprinting. So sometimes sprint short, sometimes sprint longer. But I almost never sprint more then about 30 seconds, that would be about the longest. And once in a blue moon, I might do uh, a you know one minute uh, session of sprinting. But typically my sweet spot is around 12 seconds, uh, 10 to 12 seconds. I mix it up. Sometimes I'll do uh, six, six sprints. Sometimes I'll do 20 sprints. And sometimes I won't do any. And sometimes I do it every day in a row. And sometimes I go five, uh, five days in a row without sprinting. So mix it up but it's always the same way, maximum intensity, go slow in your acceleration so you don't, don't get an injury. And the other thing I point out is, look how high the mighty have fallen. I mean, think about this. Homo sapiens are the only species in the world that can't run on a dime away from a threat. You know, all, you know, old deer, old elk, anything that's got a flea, a predator can, you know, have its little head down on the ground, chewing on grass, and then a big bad wolf pops out and they've suddenly got to take off. Um, the, it's only Homo sapiens that end up, you know, uh, strainers house because we got to warm up. And let me tell you why, because you're filled with chronic disease. We've never had more chronic disease in the existence of Homo sapiens in the, in the, throughout our entire history as we have today. And that should wake up everybody. And we sit around and we're just enormously diseased and we become tolerant of this. So I like to challenge people uh, to become aware of just how much disease has invaded your body. And uh, that's the MRI is a great way to take a look at through these, these biomarkers of this, this dangerous fat. And then if the fat also invades your muscles. So, you know, we see a condition called myosteatosis. So fatty infiltration of your muscles. So your muscles don't perform well. You can be old and perform exceedingly well. Um, my, at my age of 60, 
uh, I, I can sprint, out sprint a lot of guys in their 20s and 30s. And so it's a, it's a very, very interesting uh, capability. It's not, it doesn't go to your age. It goes to the level of your health. So you can grow better instead of growing older by being aware of what you got to eliminate, having more of a, a minimalist perspective on how you uh, regard your health, uh, not just your house, but your your house that your your soul and your 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 life form occupies your body and recognizing your body is your most important asset. So fall in love with that body, recognize it is your most important physical asset, and then have your life uh, lived around the importance of that physical asset so you can take care of it because it's your body that most defines how well you're going to enjoy every circumstance in the future or suffer the circumstances in the future. How you're living today defines that in the future. So recognize how that how important that is and definitely include sprinting is, is uh, uh, as a strategy to help optimize that most important physical asset. And you can do that in place. No, he said in place of the long oh, yeah. distance running. Yeah. He didn't mean okay. running yeah. in place, okay. but he, Sorry. Yeah. he's saying his client did it in place of. Yeah. So yeah. do not so, run in place. Yeah, Find a space yeah. where you can yeah. sprint. And on that, you know, you can, you know, I tell people to to sprint um, on nice soft services, more ancestrally uh, closer to what we did. So grass, mm. uh, you can you can sprint on sand. There's some very interesting footprints um, that, that were, you know, I think close to uh, a million years old, these guys running at the level Olympic sprinter uh, across this uh, soft mud terrain, and they could uh, uh, figure out how fast they were running. So uh, you can run a variety of services, but I tell people to avoid uh, particularly hard services that are unnatural, like concrete, uh, try to run. AstroTurf is one of my favorite surf surfaces to run on. And then for as far as footwear, check out running barefoot. What a phenomenal, my followers and my clients who sprint barefoot, it's such a natural form of sprinting and footwear becomes this uh, unnatural appendage or addition to our existence. So look for, uh, you know, tur like a lacrosse uh, turf uh, that you can, you can sprint on, uh, try to sprint uh, barefoot or the other form I like to sprint in, believe it or not, TK, are moccasins. So I get single layer moccasins. Um, I get them two sizes, um, too small, I wear size 11. So I buy size nine, I get them wet. And then I put them on, if they've been soaking in water, I put them on, uh, on my feet wet and they stretch a little bit to my feet. So it's like custom made moccasins uh, for 56 bucks. I get them off Amazon, no, no financial interest in, uh, in uh, Amazon. And uh, they come with a sole insert in them, you know, like a cushion. I rip those out. So it's just one layer of, uh, of uh, leather around my feet. So I think moccasins, uh, and people see me sprinting in gyms where moccasins are like, look at that dude, he's got moccasins on. And uh, <laughs> I'm flying like the wind. But uh, yeah, so uh, footwear is important. You don't want to be sprinting in really thick cushioned um, uh, running shoes that have flared heels and, and a lot of cushion. Uh, sprint more ancestrally with nice uh, minimalist uh, footwear. That's actually a, 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 cold, a cold type of uh, footwear, minimalist footwear. Now, Dr. Sean, you work with clients directly in Minnesota. That's where, where you live. And this next questioner, I want you to treat her as though she is a client walking into your clinic for the first time. Her name is Jean from Facebook. 
I took the machete to my eating habits and made the changes required to lose weight. I lost 85 pounds and have maintained my weight for seven years. However, I still carry too much visceral fat and look skinny with a big belly. What should I do to get rid of this last unhealthy layer? And how bad is it for my health to carry this additional fat, even though I am considered healthy in all other areas? Yeah, great question. So first of all, I would scan her. And if you're listening and you're, you're in her situation, you know, getting an MRI scan will help you figure out what is going on with your muscles and what's going on in your visceral fat. So assuming she is correct and she has this unhealthy belly fat, which will, which is uh, visceral fat, we're presuming in this particular case, then in addition to sprinting and cutting out processed foods, another really key strategy, like I'm the visceral fat doctor, I'm the sprinting doctor. And the other thing I like to go by is I'm the microbiome doctor. So I love uh, to talk about the microbiome. So I'm a little bit between Dr. Chafee and Dr. Saladino in this regard. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Chafee is all meat. He just does meat. And Dr. Saladino does meat and he does uh, fruits and honey. Uh, none of us do vegetables, uh, but I, except for me, the only, I eat vegetables, but they must be be fermented to get rid of the harmful toxins that I think are very much a threat to our species. I really not there. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. You're not going to die from eating vegetables, but the microtoxins, you got to think about the small doses you're exposed to. So I only consume vegetables that have been fermented and I only consume fruit that has been fermented. So I'm kind of in the middle. So why? Because one, not only does it eliminate the toxins that are in vegetables, and I agree doc, with Dr. Saladino uh, that they're not present in fruit, but you know there's, there's carbohydrates in there. And I do not believe carbohydrates positively contribute to our species. But the one thing they're, they're missing in, and I think I got Dr. Chafee to at least think about um, adding in fermented uh, animal products, are fermented foods because of the microbial value. Yeah. So we don't talk about this enough. Um, Dr. Zach Bush, uh, when he was on in Decluttering the Gut, which is an excellent show. If anybody uh, is listening, pull up that Minimalist podcast with Dr. Bush, very, very well done. And uh, and learn about the microbiome, fall in love with the microbiome besides fall in love with sprinting because it is the collection of microbes that are either your allies or your enemy, and you have got to figure out what is going on. And it's when we live our lives and we're oblivious to or ignorant of the microbiome, we are living a life that is uh, devoid of exploiting uh, one of the most optimizing strategies that you can have in your life by being aware of these microbes. And uh, so one of the, the chief ways besides, I won't go into all the details, I completely agree, cutting out uh, chlorine and antibiotics and food preservatives that are present in processed foods. You got to stop what's hurting your microbiome, but you got to add in this rich diversity of fermented foods that have been around for thousands thousands of years traditionally consumed by people and cultures that are very healthy. And if you're listening today and you got cravings and you cannot get rid of this belly fat, you must start consuming and fall in love with fermented foods because these microbes go down and disrupt the microbes that are causing you to cheat 
and to uh, eat things that you know are bad and you're powerless. You look at, you can't stop eating that stuff. It's because of belying it, you have an infection with carb-loving microbes that are inside of you. They create restlessness and convince you that you might even die if you don't eat these, you know, these particular, this bad food, this, you know, craving carb, 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 carbohydrates that they're in front of you. So uh, add in awesome good guys, you know, fermented foods, kimchi, kvass, uh, fermented sauerkraut, not pickled and not processed and not pasteurized, but true live cultured fermented raw living fermented foods. That's those are the kind of words that you want to look for. Get them in your gut. Um, if you hate them, boy, mm. that is the best signal. You need them. If you hate them, you need them because it's the microbes inside of you. They're telling you to hate them. They, they, they may tell you to hate the taste. They may tell you to hate the, the smell. They may even tell you to hate the appearance, but that's, those are the ones you got to get started. Very, very small. These are microbes. So you don't have to, it's not an entree. You don't need a lot of them. You can dip your finger, just like I was explained before, into a little kimchi juice, uh, lick your finger and drink it down with some spring water. And you just put good microbes into your gut. Yeah, I think I think that's great. And I like the caveat there because quite often when we get really excited about something, what happens is like, oh, I'm just going to eat an entire thing of sauerkraut or kefir or whatever. And then people get sick from that. It's like, oh, it must not work. And it's like, well, no, you your body was not ready for all of the super abundance of microbes. And it's like sprinting, right? If you go sprinting, all the way out the very first time, you can injure yourself. You can do the same thing with your gut, with fermented foods. If you're not taking it in like microdoses, at most it's a condiment that helps with the gut microbiome. It is not your entree. Yeah, super, super good point, Joshua. So I tell people to get started, slowly introduce it. And uh, I tell them also to think about your microbiome like Noah's Ark. So two of every species. So you want a variety and small quantity. So I educate uh, my followers and social media to that. It's Noah's Ark. You want to take that approach. Very, very small amounts and, and a large variety. And uh, recently, I just got my uh, microbiome sequencing back and and the uh, the CEO of the company called me up and said, or texted me, he said, the chief science officer wants to talk to you about your results. And uh, they <laughs> sent me this report and they say, you have one of the, the healthiest uh, microbiome sequences we have ever seen in our company. So uh, that was great uh, affirmation for me as, you know, the microbiome doctor. I'm trying to, you know, really promote uh, awareness of uh, the microbiome and uh, to have that kind of favorable uh, sequencing done. But, you know, to be honest with you, nobody really, we don't understand completely all of the diversity of these microbes down there, That's but right. we get them besides just through fermented foods. We get them uh, just by uh, what we did, you know, when we greet each other, we hugged each other, mm -hmm. we were swapping microbes. That's right. I look at my hair standing up. That was some good stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like, this crew is awesome. And I was thinking that, you know, when I'm swapping with them, I'm like, I'm getting good microbes, but you can also get bad microbes from people. So, you know, you want to be around people that are healthy, they're living their lives in an awesome way. Way. And so there's so many ways that we collect these healthy microbes beyond just food uh, that we, we can either help ourselves or hurt ourselves, depending on what we get exposed to. I'm hearing a couple of key takeaways so far today. The big one that really stands out to me, I think probably the biggest thing that changed my life was removing 
the processed foods. That's seed oils. It's the processed carbohydrates. It's everything. 90% of when you go to the grocery store, processed foods. Even in the health food aisle, it's mostly processed garbage. And so completely, 100% eliminating all processed foods. But then the second thing you mentioned, sprinting on top of that, these are two minimalist approaches toward minimizing fat, especially the visceral fats mm. that are creating the chronic disease, the dysfunction in our lives. TK, before we move on to some questions on the private podcast, do you have any additional insights or questions for Dr. Sean? Absolutely. One of the things you mentioned for people that struggle with a lot of these addictive foods is you say, you're probably infected with carb-loving microbes. I'd like you to explore for a little bit this idea that the food we eat comes back and thinks for us, makes decisions for us and feels for us. And we're kind of giving up our power by allowing these foods to control us in, in, in all of these strange ways. Ooh, ombre, that is such a killer question. So, so important. Hey, I feel these, pretty good. <laughs> these, what, a, what great insight you're pulling together very quickly. You're an early adopter. So these microbes have to influence the host. They can't leave the host. Would it make sense for a species of organisms, life forms that pre-existed before Homo sapiens and lived in other species to then migrate into Homo sapiens when we arrived and not be able to influence the host and, and uh, the ability to, to, the, to, to get their sustenance? So that's exactly what's going on. How they do that? We don't know. They are so much more advanced than we understand. Uh, anybody who's listening that knows uh, about CRISPR, the brilliant and genius design that microbes use single cell organisms used to identify threats and record and maintain that capability and the formula to uh, reverse that threat is so elegant. And so while this, uh, it, we are in awe of it as medical scientists about the potential for CRISPR, uh, that these single cell organisms, and yet these same, uh, you know, impressed uh, medical scientists can't figure out that these organisms are also influencing the host. And that's exactly what they're doing. So they create this craving that you're going to die if you don't eat, consume this food. But the truth is, they're going to die mm. if you don't consume. Homo sapiens, macronutrient, essential, essential macronutrients are fat and protein. It's not carbohydrates. But the organisms that are obesogenic, meaning generating obesity and pathogenic other forms of uh, pathology inside of you, that interests are inimical to you. And if you don't understand like how inimical it can be, Google cat, rat, toxo. Cat rat toxo is the phenomena of toxoplasmosis, which is a single cell organism that infects rats and completely undermines and rewrites their inherent fear of cats, gets mm -hmm. them sexually aroused. So they walk around prominently around a cat so that they get eaten by the cat because toxoplasmosis can only reproduce inside the gastrointestinal lining of a My. cat. Wow. So these microorganisms absolutely influence our behavior. Uh, it's just that we don't spend enough time about it. And why? It's like, if, if Dr. Sean is really accurate, how come I never heard about this? Well, read about it. I'll have a simple answer. The system, healthcare, big pharma, 
doesn't want you to know about the benefits of the microbiome. They want to first understand it, try to figure out pharmaceutical products to make money off of it. And I love this show that you guys don't take sponsors because it's high time we start getting the truth out there and not pushing money. So these micro microorganisms, um, whether they're good or bad, are inside of us and how you live your life decides and 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 really predicts how you're going to live in the future and your level of health. So you're exactly right. They influence us. And I was a medical examiner, state of Virginia, um, as a uh, prior to moving to Minnesota. And uh, we learned about uh, single vehicle accidents in young males, uh, oftentimes driving motorcycles. So we crash their motorcycle at insane speed. And they were oftentimes infected with toxoplasmosis. So we've seen that in studies, uh, but we need to pay more attention to how these uh, organisms uh, influence our diet and how we live. In fact, one study shows people who uh, exercise uh, have a certain species of microbes that increase their motivation for exercise. And the people that don't have that motivation are missing those particular species of microbes. So uh, mm. we will eventually mm. see that these sequences also, these particular species influence your motivation for um, choosing wisely when, what, how to eat, uh, whether you're going to go into a sauna, where you're going to go into uh, endure a cold shower, or whether you're simply going to you know, sprint or do other awesome things, uh, these microbes influence your health. So I, I'm doing the very best I can to be as selective as possible about what goes inside my body and what goes on my body so I can get the greatest collection of these microbes that are beneficial to me and, um, and prevent uh, bad ones from coming on me or into me. So I'm going to tell you the title that I will use to describe you to my friends. You are the nutritional exorcist. (laughs) People have allowed their bodies to be hijacked by these tiny little organisms that take over their thinking and cause them to engage in self-destructive behaviors. And you come in and you give people the information necessary to purify, to rid their body of this stuff. Yeah. That's thinking for them in a way they don't want to go. That's awesome. I tell my, I have an identical twin brother. He's not a physician, but he gets this and he and I talk a lot and he's had a lot of time to, to listen to, uh, to his, uh, physician, crazy Sean, uh, brother. And I, I, I said, uh, we call them zombies. These people are just like zombies walking around with these, uh, microbes controlling. And, you know, if that, if that's your sense that you're seeing that you, you just don't have control in your life. And you know what we see in clients that get rid of visceral fat and start optimizing their microbiome is they start eliminating addictions, pornography, gambling, alcohol, drugs. Uh, these addictive um, type of behaviors start uh, being eliminated from their lifestyle as they start optimizing their microbiome, improving their health. The optimized healthy man and woman lives a disciplined life of high performance. They do not allow distractive, addictive, uh, damaging behavior in their life. And as they uh, leverage their microbiome and their health, they're able to live exceedingly well. And that, if you're listening, is the message of nature that has been around for millions of years. Your cravings are not your cravings. Mm. They're influenced by what's going on in you and around you. That could be a craving for alcohol. 
It could be a craving for material possessions, especially the ones you saw in an advertisement. It can be a craving for carbohydrates. Your craving isn't necessarily your craving, meaning you want it because you feel as though it's going to do something beneficial to you, for you. But quite often the opposite is true. Yeah, It's going to harm you in a myriad ways that you can't calculate right now because the impulse of I have to have it right now is so strong that it begins to zero out the cognitive and emotional response that you would have to it that says, no, that is actually bad for me. Let me set this down. Let me pause. Let me stop. Let me disregard that because If I say yes to this right now, yes, I'll get a burst of pleasure, but I'm going to pay for it in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, no, great insights, great insights. There's uh, an interesting condition called auto-brewery syndrome. I was talking about it just uh, a couple weeks ago with a colleague, Dr. Umhow, on a national uh, radio program. And auto-brewery syndrome is a very interesting condition where people are infected with certain yeast and fungi that occupy their gastrointestinal tract. And when they eat carbohydrates, those yeast and fungi start producing alcohol, ethanol. So they can achieve intoxicating levels of uh, alcohol in their bloodstream. And they have in fact been arrested for being drunk in public and drunk while driving while intoxicated after consuming carbohydrates and nobody believes them. Nobody uh, physicians don't understand this because it's in a, in a realm that is is dealing with the microbiome, which is this a black box. But researchers are aware of autobrewery syndrome. And you can Google it if you're listening, all the cool content. When you listen to the Minimalist podcast, you get these great concepts that you're not going to get anywhere else. You can Google autobrewery syndrome and learn about this. But imagine this. These poor people are getting intoxicated. And guess what happens to them? They become alcoholics because they're exposed to so much alcohol. And then guess what happens when they stop eating carbohydrates because they see that's what's causing it? They're in withdrawal. Their lives are in torment. So what do they have to do? They have to start drinking alcohol to get rid of the tremendous symptoms they're now getting from being in withdrawal. And then they become legitimate alcoholics. Do you see the tragedy of this? So if you're listening... You want to have the healthiest microbiome as possible. Do not allow yourself to be exposed where these things can happen to you. And Mm -hmm. another great example, in February 9, 2019, in the medical journal Science Advances, they took 50 rats and they divided them into groups. Uh, 25 rats got feces from humans that were normal. 25 rats got feces from humans that had schizophrenia. And the 25 rats that got feces from the schizophrenics, those rats became schizophrenic. So this notion that we don't really, uh, we think that uh, it's just psychobabble, uh, uh, mental illness is, is all within the brain. It is in the environment. It's, it's past microbes are belying this and the healthier you are, you can prevent yourself, but it's not just schizophrenia, it's depression, it's bipolar disorder, it's arthritis, it's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, all driven uh, behind the microbiome. So the healthiest people have the healthiest microbiome and the lowest level disease. The most unhealthy people, and you can find this typically in nursing homes, 
ERs and ICUs. And if you're listening, you're a healthcare provider, you know where the heavyset nurses are, ERs and ICUs, because that's where the sickest patients are in nursing homes. You know, you got these stroked out patients. And why look at the nurses? They're heavy, but the the male physicians or the physicians uh, in those units aren't nearly as heavy. So why are they, they're, they're so obese? Because they're handling, you know, what, what are called the code browns. So a patient will have a bowel movement and that nurse has to clean them up and tidy them up. Well, those terrible obesogenic microbes you know, are going on that poor, poor nurse's hands. They don't even know it. They think unless they're putting their hands in 212 degrees of uh, you know steam, they're not sterilizing their hands. And I'd walk in the staff room and those poor nurses would be sitting around eating their sandwiches with their bare hands going, I don't know why I can't lose weight. And it's these, these obesogenic microbes that are in the sickest patients, ERs, ICUs, and nursing homes where you see these end, end stage stroked out patients um, there. So really take this serious. If you're listening today, really work to optimize your microbiome, fall in love with it, read about it, listen to cool podcasts and shows like The Minimalist and uh, follow people like uh, Dr. Bush um, and others that promote awareness about the microbiome. And of course, check out Dr. Sean's YouTube channel. Put a link to that in the show notes. I want to get to a few more questions from our audience here. Looks like we have one from Ruben. Hello, everyone. My name is Ruben from Santa Ana, California. And as a recent new listener, I just wanted to say that I absolutely love what you guys do. And I wanted to ask a bit of a serious question as someone who has struggled with eating disorders in the past. And I wanted to see how you would apply minimalist ideals or living to your day-to-day diets and eating habits, especially being in a society that I feel encourages excessive consumption or unhealthy eating habits and have kind of ingrained them as a staple unspoken rule of meaningful social interactions where I feel like things like family gatherings or hanging out with friends always have to entail this culinary element to them that might get us to do things like pressure us to eat when we're maybe not hungry or maybe eating more than we have to. And I wanted to see what your guys' take on the whole deal was. Anyway, I just wanted to say, love you guys' show. Keep on doing what you're doing. And I look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Sean, I know when I first started having some gut issues, I developed this autoimmune condition that was giving me ulcers in my small bowel. And a lot of it had to do with my gut microbiome had been completely eviscerated by 13 years of antibiotic use. I had a doctor prescribe a supposedly benign antibiotic (laughs) and just stay on it daily for 13 years. Yeah, and it created a lot of turmoil. And I realized I started to get upset like, oh, I can't eat what the average person eats anymore. But then I also realized in a sick society, the average person is also sick. And the data bears that out. But then as we get older and we start to face these these trials and tribulations around diet or material possessions or whatever it might be, I think Ruben brings up a really good point here. Um, Quite often, we're holding on to the way I wish things could be. Yes, I wish I could go to a family gathering, eat nothing, but candy and popcorn and soda, and it's delicious, and I enjoyed it, and it actually made me healthier. 
But the truth is, that's not what happens. And so I have a choice here. I can let go of it, or I can hold on to the way I wish things were. In a weird way, it's actually easier for me to let go than it is to hold on. Because if I hold on to that, I'm going to get dragged into a area of disease or dysfunction. Maybe you could talk to Ruben a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I think we do have a tendency, uh, a lot of our socializing, uh, this uh, dependence upon food that, that has to be incorporated into it. And uh, really food should be uh, approached from the perspective that it uh, that it optimizes you. And nobody really thinks about that. So uh, we become tolerant of, uh, from an ignorant perspective, uh, processed foods and things that taste good. So uh, in my clients, I advocate uh, a pattern of eating called feasting and fasting. I'm very much uh, into fasting. And I think that's ancestrally aligned with what uh, our existence would have provided us. We just wouldn't have been able to uh, always catch the woolly mammoth that we uh, hunted to extinction. And uh, we would have to go for periods of time where we, we wouldn't have uh, access to it. And uh, when we got it, we would feast because we'd want to consume as much as possible during that particular time. But we didn't have uh, these other important human interactions in, in clans where food would just kind of magically appear and it'd be real tasty. So um, I think that the notion of socializing around food should be challenged. But if um, you at least make a decision to have healthy food that is in there, eating clean, um, most of the uh, great benefits that we saw in our studies from the National Science Foundation were simply from a strategy where you eliminated processed foods and uh, people uh, were even eating just uh, vegetables and meat in a whole non-processed form. Now, I think we've refined that a little bit. And I talked about the benefits of eating fermented vegetables and fermented fruits and uh, and uh, eliminating uh, a social lifestyle where you you go and you, you just follow everybody else with the reading and uh, cake and ice cream. Um, go and be the... Uh, the, uh, the the example of awesomeness that your family needs. Don't cave in. You Once you start eating healthy and you get these tremendous benefits, why compromise? Those people need to see you stand up and be awesome and say, no, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat this and uh, be that kind of example. It's just like you challenge your your, your listening audience to adopt a minimalist uh, lifestyle. Why go be excessive? Uh, because it happens to be a family event. If you care about your family, you're not going to do that. And ultimately, um, I think you'll follow them. I get two of my adult children here um, listening to me, and they weren't always in, in lockstep to uh, everything Dr. Sean, their dad, told them. But mm -hmm. they eventually found, found a place, and I think they're they're now on board with uh, um, uh, eating in a more sensible and in a very disciplined way, and they benefit from that. But if they're you know if their dad had compromised, if this had just been something I fooled around with for a little bit, I, oh, I tried keto and didn't work, or I tried carnivore and didn't work. You know, the tragedy of that would have been not just in me but in my, my family. So um, I valued right away the fact that I was a diseased, overweight, um, terribly afflicted, you know, physician suffering. And I really wasn't all that aware of it. I was waking up four or five times a night to pee. When I pee, it would dribble out of me. Um, I had erectile dysfunction, eczema, bleeding all over my sheets. I had precancerous lesions in my, my esophagus. Um, I made horrible noises around the house that my kids would would mimic from uh, you know esophageal um, uh, dysfunction, 
and I restless leg syndrome, kick all night long and uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So I snored all night long. And one year later, one year later, after going at that time, it was 13 years ago, going paleo, um, this young guy came to the hospital. He, he told me I should go paleo and that I'll lose weight. I didn't think I would lose. I didn't think I would jettison disease. I thought I would just finally in the insanity of my stomach getting bigger and bigger and me getting fatter and fatter all the time as a doctor, drinking skim milk and chocolate syrup. Um, I, th- I thought it in the, in the insanity of being overweight. But when I realized all my disease processes went away and I'm peeing for, you know, for the first time in years into a toilet and it sounded like Niagara Falls. And mm. then I rec- recognized that I was no longer getting up at nighttime. I was so pissed off because the terrifying reality is if I, as an MD trained in medical school, can be so deceived by not appreciating lifestyle and diet, what hope is there for patients that don't go to medical school? Now, fortunately, many people are listening to you guys and listening to other podcasts and shows and learning that lifestyle matters and they're experiencing their improvement in their life and the elimination of disease. But I'm talking to my colleagues now. Wake up. This is true. We have been lied to in medical school. It has been kept from us. And I was that arrogant doctor for many years that I looked down on people that were trying to be healthy because I was that pedantic, arrogant doctor that I thought it's just medicine and we have the training and it's not. So I applaud shows that are bringing awareness, social media is is crushing it, bringing knowledge about life uh, strategies to improve health. And this goes way beyond um, just individual lives. This this has the, the ability to impact um, everybody's life and improve whatever they do, make them better barbers, make them better artists, make them better basketball players, make them better attorneys. Um, really, this is a, a tremendously important opportunity for our species to go to entirely new levels. We just need to start educating ourselves about that. And I think, I think we probably have to give up on medicine. Um, I think it's, it's become uh, a victim. It's been uh, corrupted by uh, big pharma. I'm gonna get myself killed talking this way, but, (laughs) (laughs) but there is such influences that are trying to keep. And, you know, if you're listening and you're, you know, think about your own doctor. If they've been, you know, around for a while, how do they look? How do they perform? I mean, one of my last encounters was an orthopedic surgeon. My my son needed to go there. And this guy saw him swing twice with his arms trying to get himself out of the chair. He was so overweight. Um, they're as bad as, you know, as patients. They're not, they're not getting better because they don't know how to do it. One of the things that comes up a lot when people kind of figure out how they want to eat is this underlying assumption that says, if I'm being realistic, I know there are going to be these occasions, birthdays, graduations, whatever, where I'm going to have to give a little something. I'm going to have to eat a slice of cake. I'm going to have to not be rude, take a shot of something, whatever. What is your philosophy of cheating? Do you think, no, never do it? And if so, how do you, I mean, and if you think it is okay, how do you find a way to cheat that doesn't result in the spiral going out of control and just relapsing back into the old way of thinking. That's awesome. So you can cheat if you want to shoplift, you can get away with it. Uh, And maybe you don't get caught. But let me tell you, 
if you cheat, you're not getting away with it. You're going to be caught because here's what's going to happen. You're going to put down carbohydrates, you know, particularly processed foods and seed oils and all these, this dangerous food that these bad microbes love and need. They're going to die. That goes in there. You just don't know the harm. If you knew the harm that that's going to cause, you would never cheat. I'm just uh, exquisitely aware as a researcher of the harm that that causes. Because if you even lick a little bit of an ice cream cone, I'm just going to cheat a little bit. Let me tell you what's going to happen. If you just the smallest little dip of your finger and that tip of that ice cream going into your mouth, you have just delivered a football field full of food because these microbes take the smallest amount of food and that's more than what they need to go down and have the most awesome, horrific orgy uh, ever inside going on in your, your, your body now. They're going to duplicate. And let me tell you, they don't do it every nine months. They do it in like minutes and hours. They're reproducing. So they can out-reproduce and out-evolve your, your ability to live and deal with these strategies. So they're winning the game. So just the smallest amount of, of cheating favors them. And then you get all of these additional cravings. And if you're listening, you know what I'm talking about. You just cheat one time and you get all this immense cravings that start following because you fed into that. And that's what happens with people that, that oh, I tried keto and I tried carnivore and I failed. Well, that's why they 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 fail is because they, you live in this society where these microbes are present. The poor Somalis uh, come from Somalia. They're super thin, you know, from that movie, Black Hawk Down. I got skinnies here. I got skinnies there. They're very thin people living in Somalia. The largest community of Somali, Somalians outside of Somalia is in Minneapolis. And if you look at them, they're getting horrifically obese and nobody's talking about this what's going on with them um it's not american food they don't eat it they're halal they must eat in somali restaurants they must eat in somali grocery stores they're eating the exact same food that they ate in somalia only now they're gaining all this weight why because american microbes that they're present you know, within when they go to Walmart, they go to Target, they go to Mall of America and they touch escalator rails, those microbes are going in. And if anybody knows Oprah, that's what happened to her. She'd lose weight and get it back. Lose weight, get it back. The yo-yo. Why? No one taught her about the microbiome. Nobody taught her she must be eating these fermented foods. So you cannot cheat at all. You got to eat fermented foods on a daily basis. So you're putting in good soldiers, really good allies into your gut. And then you will, you'll end the insanity of yo-yoing and you'll end those cravings. So when I look at those food, I have no, I see, I'd rather eat camel dung before I'd eat a little tiny piece of cake. It has no attraction to me whatsoever. And I just see, you know, I see like uh, a piece of cake or, or, you know, some kind of baklava. I see it's like glass shards. Oh, I just would, would not, I have no attraction for it. I see exactly what it'll do. It'll lead to uh, a lot more cravings and feed the bad guys. I want to eat good, healthy meat. I want to eat fermented foods. I want to do awesome things so that I continue to enjoy my fantastic. And if you think I got an eating disorder, huh? Let me address that. My life is so much better. I was disordered before I had the eating disorder when I ate unhealthy foods. Today, yeah, I'm pretty focused about what I eat, but it's because I do not 
want to lose the awesome lifestyle that I'm living right now by uh, eating correctly, living correctly. And that's what is that's what is available to you if you just understand and see what's going on. I think the the Somalis as well, it's probably worth noting that putting someone who has really dark skin in a climate where there's very little sun seven, eight months out of the year is probably another contributing factor. Um, you know, we we humans have evolved for a long time and people with pale skin like I have, uh, they, my ancestors evolved in Northern Europe, but, but people who have darker skin, they need much more sunlight in order to get vitamin D. And, and so I think you, you couple that with the microbiome of America, the dysfunction of America, um, and this is permeating the entire world now. You know, our clutter has permeated the borders of all 193 countries. We have people from Kenya who email us and they're like, oh, can you come give a talk in Kenya about materialism? And it's like, wow. Because what happens is as soon as you be, you get access to it, you think, this is what I should want. And the cravings begin, whether it's a material possession or it is a piece of cake, we, we tend to want to consume the things that give us immediate pleasure. But as we always say on this podcast, beware of anything that gives you an immediate reward without an immediate cost, because then you're going to end up paying for it sometime in the future. Yeah, really, really good uh, perspective. It, so much is insights and awareness about the things that uh, previously cluttered our lives uh, to help uh, form the correct strategies to uh, to jettison uh, the things that we've been tolerating. So, you know, it's a it's an encouraging mission, uh, message that you you don't have to tolerate uh, maximalist living. You don't have to tolerate disease in your body. Um, I tell my clients that uh, they start on a journey of health. It, it really is a journey. It's not a, a light switch that you immediately get to. Uh, there, It's a series of paths and decisions that you make going in the right direction. And uh, the only light switch is getting started, that you want that. And uh, so I help I help clients that work with me to, to value health and value their life. And I think uh, there, there needs to be a, a more awareness that health really goes to the to quality of life that you live. I, I, you know, sadly think that we've bought into, um, as a species, the lie that health doesn't really have that much of an impact on your life because you're going to be able to live about 77 years. Um, but the quality of your life really is radically different um, depending on the, the, the years and how you live, the decisions you make. So um, great insights. And, and uh, I think it's through... Uh, again, social media and uh, shows like this that people are becoming aware of this and we're challenging uh, the status quo that's really uh, killing people. You know, one thing that's really inspiring about what you're saying is you're helping me realize that when you say no to temptation, you you get to win more than just the victory in the moment. Sometimes when you're battling with something, it feels like, man, it's really hard to say no to temptation now. And then I got to come back and say no tomorrow and the next day. But every time you say no to that and you say yes to something that's good, you're making an investment in future strength because you're warring against the things that are within you that incline you to say yes. And so when you say no today to something that's hard, that means you're creating a version of yourself that's gonna have an easier time in the future saying yes because you're putting the good stuff in you that's gonna help you say it. Yeah, no, that's really good. The other way to um, build on that TK is... uh, 
understand our principle. I, I like to educate people about it. it's called compounding. So um, it's helpful, I think, in many cases for people to think about their health from the standpoint of maybe a financial account, like a bank account. So when you make a healthy decision, uh, a decision, a strategy to optimize your most important physical asset, you're making it a deposit into your your health account that compounds over a period of time. It earns you interest. Mm. But the same principle applies when you make a poor decision and you uh, end up doing something unhealthy, even if it's a lick from an ice cream cone. Then you're making a deduction. You're losing money or you're accumulating debt. And that debt uh, accumulates percentage. So it's like people that get themselves in trouble with credit cards, uh, the earned interest on the, those credit cards start getting themselves um, in deeper financial situations. And you really need to think about that with how, particularly how you eat. You know, are you making um, a positive contribution to your health account or are you making uh, a negative detrimental contribution to your health account? So um, the, the notion of compounding, uh, I think, is uh, reflective in what you just said, that uh, you, 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 you head in the right direction, you're building up your savings, uh, and you're building up your health. We've got a few more questions here. This one is from Rand. This is Rand, a patron subscriber from Houston, Texas, and I have a question concerning weight loss. Please comment on the similarities between unhealthy eating and unwise spending since they both seem to be exacerbated by the same stressors. Well, Dr. John, you, you, were, you were just talking about this, yeah. the, the unwise spending. There's nothing to compound in terms of my financial resources. If I spend all of my resources today, I'm not going to earn any interest on it tomorrow. I'm just wasting. In fact, as Americans, we often do the opposite. We go into debt. And it seems to me that that's what we're also doing with our health. I'm rewarding myself right now because of this impulse. And impulse is the precursor of regret. I'll just go ahead and do this, a small little indiscretion, right? Before I know it, I've got 14 different credit cards I'm trying to pay off. But we're also doing that with our bodies, aren't we? Yeah, no, that's a really, uh, really good insight. And I think uh, uh, that that question really is fundamental. People people are not uh, having the appropriate insight to what they're doing. And you see this uh, excessive spending, excessive uh um, uh, approach to life because behind it is a lack of awareness and insight into it. So, you know, what's helpful is living within um, a network of family and friends, uh, others, colleagues, maybe at work that share your values and help you affirm that kind of understanding. It can bring more discipline to you. And uh, that discipline starts with um, understanding the benefit of these strategies. If you're looking at them just from uh, the perspective that you want immediate gratification, um, you're going, you're going to you'd sadly become disappointed. You really want to have uh, um, uh, the opportunity to delay your gratification. The interest of you must have discussed the marshmallow study at one time. Yeah. 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 So the marshmallow study comes to mind uh, as a good example of that. Those kids uh, became far more uh, successful in life when they could delay their gratification. Um, and get uh, greater benefit down the road. So, just to be clear, the marshmallow study. Can can you elaborate on it for folks who haven't heard of it? Yeah. So it was an interesting study where they took four year olds um, and they they put a marshmallow in front of them and said, "Hey, you can eat this, but if you wait fifteen minutes, we will give you two. But you got to wait fifteen minutes to see." 
Um, and if you do, then we'll come back and we'll give you another one. So then they walked out and they videotaped them. And it was interesting to see how these kids behaved. But um, the, the real value of the study was, while it was rare that a kid would wait 15 minutes, what they found is those that did 30 years later, they followed up the ones that uh, waited and delayed gratification. They were more uh, educated. They were more successful. Um, they had a, a better lifestyle. They made more money. And the ones, depending on how fast mm -hmm. they gave into that temptation, were either more obese, more diabetic, more riddled with addiction, uh, and were poor performing, more marginalized in society. So um, probably, you know, the the unknown um, entity operating in that study was the microbiome. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was just at a pool uh, about three weeks ago and I saw this three-year-old having a meltdown because uh, mom was leaving the pool and going by the snack bar and that kid, the microbes inside of that kid that the mother, by the way, had previously infected uh, with, you know, uh, giving this kid ice cream. Now the kid wants wants ice cream. Those microbes saw the ice cream and they want their their fill. And so this kid has become this this young uh, and child infected with you know, carb-dependent microbes inside of them. And uh, the mom's blaming the kid. The mom is yelling at the kid, grabbing. And if you're listening today, um, look at what you have done with your children if they're toddlers and, and they're having a meltdown and what they want these carbohydrates. You know, it's, it's because they have resident within them, uh, carb dependent, um, uh, microbes that are driving them to, to want, uh, carbohydrates. So, you know, consider raising your child free of carbohydrates. When that child turns one years old, put a piece of steak in front of that kid, not a slice of cake, put a candle in the, in the, in the, in the steak and make a big deal and sing songs where the kid is eating healthy instead of uh, making a big deal, singing songs and a candle with all the pretty colors. And you're, you're building pathways into that child's brain, uh, that the cake and everything is really good. Oof. Uh, it's insane how we, we lead our kids into this, uh, suboptimal infected state, um, through uh, influences to our microbiome and their their existence right from the get go. And you did a you did a video recently on your YouTube channel about milk and how milk is obviously species appropriate. We give babies breast milk from their mother, um, and however, you don't eat that as a carbohydrate unless it's fermented, right? So I, I guess what you're saying when you uh, are talking about avoiding carbs in, in kids, you're not saying don't give infants breast milk, but what you're saying is let's avoid giving the four-year-old a slice of cake as a quote-unquote celebration mm. or a reward. Yeah, exactly. I think we need to be uh, more intentional about what we're, we're raising, exposing our, our children to. And uh, milk is wonderfully optimizing. And I, I can't endorse it high, uh, highly enough breastfeeding your, your infant if you're um, uh, are going to be having a child, make sure you leverage as much as possible. And I recognize, I say at the same time, that not all women are able to, uh, but if you can possibly make sure you breastfeed 
And uh, for adults, my client patients that work with me, uh, I do for the time being uh, have them eliminate dairy unless it's uh, unless it's fermented. And I will placehold the possibility of adding back dairy at some point if their microbiome becomes optimal enough. It's just right now, I think the ultimate elimination diet is carnivore uh, with ferments and eliminating all other foods until you uh, have built up your microbiome and you're able to take these other foods in and then you can do a sensible approach, maybe, maybe adding back in things like uh, milk or or a vegetable or or something at a time to see the the impact and why not get an MRI and see that my study of myself and N of one it's eighteen days you can see um, that I've increased uh, my subcutaneous fat but a particularly form of subcutaneous fat that's bad and we haven't talked about it but it's deep subcutaneous fat and guess where a really cool marker of it is and you only need an MRI to find it your love handles yeah. and people people may not see it, but you can feel it. Stick your finger back in there just around your iliac crest and you can push back on the, the, the skin around your iliac crest and you can feel whether you've got space. You shouldn't have space, but um, if you've got space in there, chances are that's where it's concentrated deep subcutaneous fat and that behaves like visceral fat. It's inflammatory. And so love handles... Uh, instinctively look bad. And guess who do they look bad to? Very interesting, Joshua, is males. Mm. You know, females want uh, faceless and plastic surgery. But when I started researching deep subcutaneous fat, I saw the inflammation disease that it uh, causes and align with. Um, I saw all these ads popping up for plastic surgeons. And it's us guys are going around having their love handles removed. Mm. We will tolerate the dad bod, but you know we don't want love handles. And your ab, your abdominal, if you got a lot of uh, subcutaneous fat on your abdomen, you don't have a six pack, that is usually superficial subcutaneous fat. But your six pack, they are probably 75 to 80% deep subcutaneous fat. So if you're walking behind some dude wearing a bathing suit on a beach and he's got love handles, Ugh, cringy. Uh, it's because that's nature telling you that is a bad biomarker. So I tracked a lot of external biomarkers uh, in relationship to visceral fat and uh, love handles are one that you you don't you don't want to have. So I think cellulite you, as well. You mentioned that in one of your videos. Yeah. So cellulite is a um, it, you know it's interesting to, that in the studies even I was looking at they 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 don't have any real studies that go out and show. Uh, that are well done showing how harmful cellulite is. But my guess it is actually really bad because uh, women hate the appearance of cellulite. It's not an attractive look. And the healthiest people uh, have the, the lowest amount of visceral fat don't have cellulite. And women that have cellulite and men, by the way, about 10 to 20% of people with cellulite are males. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, Cellulite is corresponds to the amount of visceral fat that you have in deep subcutaneous fat. So uh, it's uh, it's something that you want to avoid. You want my definition of health is how you look and how you perform. You want to look awesome, and you want to perform awesome, and that is what I define as health. I think feeling good is part of that performing part as well, right? Because just because you can run fast, that's one type of narrow performance. But broadly, you were talking about this earlier. So just to illustrate the point, lifespan is different from health span. You could live three hundred years but be suffering immensely that entire time. And who wants to live that life? 
Or you can function optimally. You can feel good because you have a good gut microbiome. You feel reasonably healthy. You don't feel inflamed. You have a reduced amount of, you've minimized your visceral fat and maybe optimize your subcutaneous fat, especially the superficial subcutaneous fat. And now all of a sudden you're living an optimized life and you feel good about it. Feeling good a lot has a lot to do with uh, not feeling that pain. You know, if I have pain in my knee, I notice it. But I don't notice if I don't have pain in my knee unless I make a concerted effort to be like, oh yeah, that's pretty great. I don't have any pain in my knee anymore. No, really good point. And I, I certainly feel good. And, you know, earlier I was talking about how attractive I am to uh, to my new lifestyle. And I don't want to go back to how I, I felt formerly before. Um, nonetheless, though, you you got to be careful about chasing feelings. So I think a lot of people pursue alcohol and substance abuse. Uh, um, Dr. Chafee talked about, well, if you want to feel good, try cocaine. Uh, <laughs> he joked, joked about it on one of his podcasts. And uh, so there, there is also that particular perspective. You want to make sure you're feeling good is a consequence to the lifestyle that you're living. Like you, you just posited correctly. Um, but uh, do be careful. Um, interesting about milk that there's a, a molecule in there ca- called casmorphin uh, that sounds like morphine because it has an opioid-like uh, quality and it exists naturally within milk. And it may be theorized that it's to help babies to become very dependent upon breast milk. Um, but it might be why I fell in love with milk, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so did my um, my oldest boy. And many people become sort of a uh, dependent or addicted to uh, milk; they just don't want to give it up. And so I think there's there's also the potential for um, uh, milk and and certain things to uh, for us to become dependent upon it. And it certainly made me made me feel good. So um, it's 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 taking that line approach and following traditions. So, you know we're we're, we're meant as a species to live in tribes and clans where we look awesome and we perform awesome things. We go out and hunt, you know, and do these important functions. And so we would have formed traditions that would have uh, aligned to maximizing our existence because we all work together to help each other live longer and live better. And uh, we kind of marginalized ourselves away from the, the clan approach. And now uh, maybe we're at best in kind of family situation. But what's really cool is we're starting to see it come back online and social media. We're getting these very interesting communities where people are starting to live together. So I leverage that with my clients. So I have an online community of my clients um, and people are in there all day long doing awesome, uh, awesome things and, and, and sharing that with each other. And so you want to you wanna live that kind of life where you are inspired uh, by other people uh, from their insights and they're demonstrating that to you and it uh, inspires you to to adopt that as well. So um, I think it's time that our species come back and recognize that we're meant to have these clans and tribes of people and uh, it ain't happening in conventional healthcare. It is completely mm-hmm. absent. So we got to do it ourselves. TK, you ran into that recently. You've had a few emergency room visits. You, you had this... Uh, bowel issue. Maybe you could talk a bit about that, but also the the churn and burn system of, of modern medicine. Not only was it incredibly expensive, but it also wasn't very caring or community-like. Well, well, the, the treatment that I got in terms of the people, fantastic. Everyone was first class, and I want to give them props for that. But 
in terms of just the the nightmare that was the experience, I, I've heard it said before that either you're going to pay the farmer, the grocer, or you're going to pay the doctor. Boy, do I really know what that means because <laughs> not only do you have to pay them financially, it costs a lot of money to not be healthy. But in addition to that, you pay in terms of these really unpleasant experiences that are far worse than the inconvenience you think you'll have to go through uh, when it comes to making the adjustments you need to make in your life. I know for me, I back to back, basically only eight weeks apart, I had to go because of a bowel obstruction and get the NG tube up my nose down and get things pumped out of my stomach while I'm on an IV. And just like everything from the inconvenience of being able to use the bathroom, you got to call someone in, they got to unhook you, they got to help you up, they got to do all these different things. And um, using the bathroom is is, is an anxiety ridden experience because you don't really have much by way of privacy. Um, And, you know, you feel rushed the whole time and you're hooked up to a bunch of things, you got no freedom. But then just that, that pain of having something like that, you think, okay, I'm at the hospital. I'm lying on this bed all day. I'm not going anywhere. Maybe I can read something. Maybe I can catch up on some text messages. Maybe I can enjoy a TV program. Uh, actually not. You're not enjoying anything huh. because it doesn't even feel good to hold a book. It doesn't feel good to sit there and watch a TV program because you're in so much discomfort. And then you're also so drugged up just to try to alleviate the discomfort that you're just sort of like there in pain. You're forced into the now moment in pain. And so it just makes you rethink a lot of things like, okay, so what do you do when you are living the life that you're afraid of? It makes you look at those fears that you don't want to take on a little bit differently. Yeah, that's really yeah. good. And th- that fortunately was a temporary condition yeah. for you. So it's a, it's a, uh, a quick look into what your life could be like in the future. And uh, I, I was that emergency medicine doctor would take care of stroke patients and they would come in as bad as a bowel obstruction is. And I had one. Uh, I remember I being the, I think I was the single, uh, the most loathsome doctor for opioids that ever roamed the earth. I couldn't stand, I would, I just never gave opioids. Then when I get a bowel obstruction, I went to that nurse coming in that ER and said, I need IV Dilaudid. I mean, it was first camera <laughs> because that hurt so bad. But stroke patients come in the door, they can't, uh, oftentimes they can't talk, uh, they can't walk, they can't move, they're paralyzed. And if when that acutely happens to you in your first time in your life, you are terrified. So they would look directly at me. The guy with the long white coat is the person they're hoping is going to stop the insanity of their paralysis and their inability to speak. So they're terrified, locked, laser locked on me. And I'd be moving super fast, try to do thrombolytic agents, whatever I can to try to open up their blood flow to preserve their brain. But oftentimes it's too late. Their fate has been sealed and they end up going to a nursing home after, you know, a trial at home and their their loved one, their family members can't keep keep up with the diaper changes and on all the work that's required of it. And so months later, they come back into the ER. It's the middle of the night, two o'clock. They have a fever. And uh, now that same person that uh, I've seen before with the acute stroke that couldn't stop looking at me, uh, he or she won't even look at me, won't make eye contact. Why? Because they've resigned themselves with their fate that they will never change. They're going to be like that forever. But uh, you and TK and Joshua and everybody listening, you're not there yet. You can make decisions to prevent that from happening. So you need to have a very serious chronic disease uh, prevention program, which is through optimizing your health, making healthy decisions all along. 
I could tolerate uh, cancer. I don't want it. I could tolerate a heart attack. Uh, I could tolerate uh, diabetes, lots of things. But I do not want to be lying in diapers, uh, grunting or not understanding my kids or my wife when they come and tell me that they love me and I can't even understand that speech. Um, that is a miserable state of existence. And almost no doctor is talking to people about the reality. Uh, and by the way, this is the biggest killer in America, heart attacks and strokes. I'm not fear-mongering. You go to a, a nursing home, you'll see they're filled with stroke patients that have this kind of an outcome. And they would do anything uh, to to relive their lives in a healthy way, but they'll never have a chance. So, you know, a healthy man has many dreams, an unhealthy one, on, unhealthy man, only one. And so you have the opportunity for listening today to start living your life more aligned with uh, optimizing your existence, optimizing your body, and taking care of your most important physical asset, your body. We often think about the cost of a thing based on the price tag that we see. What's the cost of that material good? What's the cost of the new iPhone? What's the cost of this piece of cake? But not also asking ourselves, what's the true cost of this? And if I eat this way, is it going to cause disease and dysfunction in my body? Am I going to live suboptimally? Am I going to be in pain? Am I going to feel tired? Am I going to feel inflamed? Are my joints going to hurt? Am I going to have bowel issues, irritable bowel syndrome, or IBD? What's going on inside me is a byproduct of the costs I didn't consider early on when I made that consumption decision. When I choose to consume something, yes, I'm going to pay the cost for that right now, but I'm also going to pay a cost in the future. And if I'm consuming the healthy things, the things that are good for me and my body that are nourishing me, then guess what? I'm going to get the compound interest on those healthy decisions tomorrow. But if I make the decision today because, mmm, this sure does taste good, I really need that icy or I need that sugar, I need that processed carbohydrate, well, I'm going to pay for that later. Yeah, I know it's really, really key insights. And if you're if you're one of those people who are just absolutely struggling, um, really do uh, consider adopting uh, strategies to improve your microbiome in another area, promising area um, that I don't think has ever been uh, taught. And maybe Zach, uh, Dr. Bush talked a little bit about fecal microbiota transplants, but I think in the future, people that are really struggling with very uh, challenged lifestyles and, and they're just afflicted with cravings and making really poor decisions. Yeah. We're data mining a lot of fecal microbiotic transplants where they take feces from one human mm -hmm. and put it to another. And we're seeing the curative benefits that it has uh, people that have um, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's mm -hmm. uh, that are also afflicted with C. diff. They get an FMT and it's reversing um, their, their Crohn's. So in one study... Uh, 60 people with Crohn's uh, had FMTs. Uh, out of the 60 people, 19 were cured. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just treated. They didn't need any more medicine. And of those 19 people, fascinating uh, was uh, that 11 of them got their feces from a single donor. Mm -hmm. So what that means is they were a super donor. Yes. And in the research realm, we call them super poopers. <laughs> and uh, so they had this capacity, their feces were so microbial rich, they could really optimize people. So what that means for the listening audience is that's where you want to be. 
You want to have that kind of a microbiome that is resilient against disease. And uh, in the future, you may be able to to help people uh, because I think uh, the future treatment of medicine, um, we're going to be looking at FMTs. Yes. And the, the healthier microbiome in the future, you may be able to be a stool donor mm-hmm. that literally saves lives based on the awesome lifestyles that you've elected to live. In fact, I think we ought to be making contests for kids uh, to incentivize them, uh, giving them scholarships to college and giving them a big cash payout for kids to have the healthiest microbiomes in the future. And uh, you'll be able to use their their feces to help out uh, others and humanity. So we've got to really change our, our outlook and our paradigms about how we're going to take care of people in the future. We've got to abandon this um, profit-driven model of treating disease uh, and we have to come up with commercial viability for uh, medical practices, health optimizing practices in the future uh, that are predicated upon results and improving people's lifestyles before uh, we we are attended to uh, to money. There's a thing called an EMR, electronic medical record. Every medical practice uh, in the country um, has an EMR, and it's all designed to literally optimize the money of that medical practice, the healthcare system that they're a part of, and the insurance companies. Mm. There are no little clicks and boxes in there to optimize a human being. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wait, how so? Because uh, electronic medical records are driven when you go in and you talk to your doctor and he or she is clicking away, you get about four or five minutes FaceTime and the rest of the time they're clicking away. Either they, we used to click in front of people and now they move the computers away out of the room. And now we go or we leave the room and we're spending the next 11 minutes clicking boxes. And every one of those boxes they're clicking are designed to increase the revenue and um, um, the, the collection rate on what you're going to get for that patient encounter. But none of those boxes are like uh, visceral fat, telangiectasia, spider veins, um, uh, uh, the, the, the other biomarkers, uh, how thick people's hair are, how, if, whether they have visible pulses, uh, all these really much more valuable biomarkers. And the reason why those, those important biomarkers that I use are ignored is because they can't make money off of them. So they make money off other things. So all the clicks are designed, every, mm-hmm. every one of those boxes are designed to make money for the system. So uh, um, that, that's, that's why EMRs are in existence. They're bought by medical practices. But if you're a consumer today, you should be going in and demanding an EMR that optimizes me. And if you're bright and you're listening to me today and you're a coder and you like designing software, contact me because I want to build an EMR that optimizes human beings, the first one. And uh, I got the correct biomarkers uh, and the content to do that. We just need somebody to come up and build software. And then I think uh, I think consumers would be like, I'm not going to this medical practice unless they have an EMR that's going to optimize me instead of this darn medical practice, big pharma and uh, big insurance and big healthcare. They should be starting with patients. We, we touched a little bit on FMTs there. I've done nine myself. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Super donors <laughs> are impossible to, to find. Um, and because I had over 100 ulcers in my small bowel, it was like just pure hell for about 18 months. And um, was trying to figure everything out. The ideal FMT donor, fecal matter donor, or a fecal microbiome donor, they are like ages two to 16. Now, the truth is, 
should be anyone. A 40-year-old should be the ideal donor, but we've ruined our digestive systems with antibiotics, with processed foods, with junk foods, with excess carbohydrates and sugar. And so no, no one who's an adult almost has an optimized microbiome. There are a few exceptions, but the average person is swimming in dysfunction. If you want to read more on that, are there any places that you would recommend people go? Because for me, it was the Wild West when I first, this was 2019 when I did it. And it was the Wild, Wild West. And even the best clinics were having trouble finding super donors at the time. Yeah. No, it's, it is a very elusive area of science. We um, it's in its infancy. Um, and it's dangerous too. If you just, I mean, I, mine were home FMTs. And so- Oh, do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with my wife. Um, and I, I can tell you that uh, it's not pleasant, but when you become desperate enough, your health is suffering enough. TK, think about when you're in the emergency room recently and in tremendous pain, you start to say, I am willing to do whatever it takes. I'll cut out whatever I need to cut out. I'll do whatever I need to do. I'll stop doing whatever I need to stop doing at this point. But it was still very much the the wild, wild west. And we did top uh, FMTs, bottom FMTs. And uh, I, I think it did help a bit. I don't know that my wife is necessarily a super donor, even though she is a paragon of health and she grew up on a farm in Minnesota. But even then, your average best donor is somewhere around two to 10 years old, probably. Yeah, so we're going to learn more about sequencing and following it. I think, uh, you know, the metrics you use for the microbiome can give you insight into how healthy your gut is. Um, A very cool company that I'll plug, I don't have any financial interest in, but... um, it's called tend dash health tendhealth.com with a dash in between. Um, they're very uh, cool researchers. Uh, they do the microbiome sequencing and they don't sell supplements. So very often you see sequencing being done by uh, organizations and companies that sell prom- uh, promote uh, supplements that they're trying to make money off. But Ten Health. Um, really is just looking at sequencing. They're serious researchers. And I think uh, that that is kind of model that we want to move to. And we have to align ourselves with species and microbes. Another example is a study that was done uh, from Israel where they took people then fed them chocolate ice brownies. And they looked at blood sugars after people ate chocolate brown uh, iced uh, brownies. And expectedly, the majority of people would spike their blood sugar. Well, a certain number of people did not have any spike in their blood sugars at all. And they sequenced the people that had spikes and the ones that didn't, and what they, they found a difference. So um, there are companies now trying to um, regulate or produce um, outside um, the body these particular microbes so that we can stop the, the uh, spike in blood sugar and presumably allow people to eat carbohydrates and tasty foods without this impact. So the problem is it's they're very delicate and they haven't been able to reproduce it. These things live in vivo within the gut, but not in, in vitro and in a, in a form of a probiotic. So it's just early on. You were fortunate that you had some improvement, but I, I would like to promote uh, a lot more serious funding yeah. uh, for FMTs. And, uh, and then I also smell a rat. I think the FDA... Um, is being way too um, restrictive about uh, FMTs only being done for C. diff. Um, I recognize that uh, 
um, that, that, like you point out, that it's the Wild West and there could be harm. I mean, for instance, if you, uh, and there have been examples of this, if you get donors that are unhealthy and you receive their stool, you can be afflicted with their medical conditions that are being trans transmitted through these microbes right. unknowingly. Yeah. And so you really do want to get the healthiest, uh, the healthiest possible stool donors. And I think it starts with better knowledge and better research. So um, I'd like to put a big plug in for uh, our influences. A lot of money for research comes from the National Institute of Health, the National Science Foundation, uh, federal government. And uh, we should be demanding, you know, better understanding about the FMTs because I think of the, the huge potential in the future to help out people, not only like yourself, but people that are really having life-threatening disease can really be, I think, helped in the future with FMTs. Standard disclaimer here, nothing on this podcast is medical advice. So please consult your doctor, your yoga teacher, your dentist, and uh, your neighbor before taking your health into your own hands. Um, no, but in all seriousness, I, um, I I do worry about the dangers of that. And so I, it's not something I recommend to anyone if you ha are having serious gut issues, especially if you, if you have C. diff. I mean, it's a it's a no-brainer because the they stopped clinical trials on antibiotics with C. diff because they found that the FMTs were just working so well yeah. that it was actually considered malpractice to not just give the participants in the trial an FMT. Yes. Uh, and so C. diff is a type of uh, bacterial overgrowth that uh, many, I think it kills 13,000 people a year in the United States. It's a tremendous amount of... Of, of people who suffer from it. And, and so, but there are other uh, applications of FMTs. And so uh, there are some deep rabbit holes that you can fall down on Reddit and other places if, <laughs> if it's something that you want to consider. But most people actually don't need to consider that. Most people can consider simply removing the processed foods from the diet, slowly micro doses of fermented foods, uh, adding it in very cautiously that can help the vast majority of people. So true. Really, really good advice. And the other one is uh, to remove is chlorine. So chlorinated water in uh, municipal water systems um, add have added in chlorine to it to stop bacterial growth uh, within the municipal supply of water. But that water uh, doesn't, that chlorine doesn't stop uh, working when it goes into your gut. It destroys the the good uh, beneficial microbes that are resident within your gut. And we're seeing a lot of problems as a consequence of a disruptive microbiome from, from chlorine and other chemical substances that come in uh, from water. So I advocate drinking spring water, mm -hmm. uh, distilled water, uh, well water, making sure that you don't have toxins within your well water and getting it checked, and just exposure to natural bodies of water. You know, I try to drink, you know, a, a tablespoon of ocean water. Get those awesome microbes uh, within within my my gut and uh, other glacier water and uh, well water that has uh, naturally existing microbes to optimize and would make valuable contributions to to my health. And uh, I also think it'd be interesting to uh, as a as a charity if anybody wants to start one to take um, homeless people that I think suffer very oftentimes from from mental illness blind, which I think is a disruptive microbiome. Um, and provide them a good healthy meal uh, on the beach and give if in exchange for a nice nice dip in the in the water in mm -hmm. the ocean water um, you can take with some of the most malodorous smelling 
uh, bad smelling uh, humans that uh, I haven't showered in a long time, put them in the ocean to come out smelling pristine mm -hmm. from the contributions of these microbes. But if we can get get them exposed to uh, beneficial water. Uh, very often the homeless people are eating the worst diets, rich in a lot of processed foods. Uh, if we get them uh, fed better, I think we do a lot more uh, and achieve a lot more with that challenging marginalized population uh, with that kind of approach. So uh, we're gonna learn more about microbes and ways uh, it can help the marginalized in society, um, not, just the, not just the really uh, uh, affluent and even the most affluent people, I think, are are riddled. I formerly had a concierge medical practice. I took care of fifty two billionaires, and they had some of the the least uh, amount of health. They were very addicted to, you know, gluttonous type of rich carbohydrate foods, and we had to keep. When we took care of, we had to keep jars of Snickers around them. It was really pathetic. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, we're building them ICUs in their homes and and uh, and and big buses to to move them around that were secret and and uh, but they're they're just carbohydrate uh, addicted. So I couldn't get them to optimize. So I walked from that that previous uh, company that I started uh, because I saw the value of uh, investing in your health and not reacting. I, I built these very interesting reactionary models that. Um, wealthy hedge fund principals mostly would buy, you know, if they had a stroke. But uh, I just saw the insanity of reacting to a stroke um, rather than preventing the stroke. And oh, by the way, living a much better life. So I'm happy that I had the experience in taking care of these very affluent people. I could see um, the fallacy of their decisions to, to pursue pleasure and not, uh, not really try to optimize their health. And so if you're listening today, I don't believe um, that the, the wealthy people necessarily have an advantage over health. It's really the man or woman that's living their lives better that has the advantage over health. It's just that we've got to teach and, and help promote awareness of how, how we should be living as a species. BK, what I hear here is a, a message of hope, you know, whether it's carb cravings, those eventually go away when we make the appropriate choices for a sustained period of time. Uh, and I think that holds true in virtually every area of our lives. As we build that muscle, you can call it discipline or commitment to a healthier lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. What's on the other side of it is actually all of the reward, the reward of being pain-free, the reward of being optimally healthy, the reward of the optimized gut microbiome that produces the perfect stool so that you are eliminating what you need to eliminate. And, and so as we wrap up this episode, are there any other insights or questions that you might have? Because I know we could go through this all day and I'll obviously encourage folks to check out doc, Dr. Sean's YouTube channel. But where should we end this? Where should we land the plane today? I think about the nature of addiction and how there are some addictions that are so difficult to hide that to indulge them will cause signs of dysfunctionality that influence the people who love you to express concern about it. And there are some addictions that are pretty easy to hide and you can indulge them in secret and no one will know that, you're, that your life is slowly unraveling. But then there's this larger set of addictions that are so socially acceptable that you don't even need to hide them because everyone else is doing them too. Wow. Mm -hmm. And what I get out of this session today is that normalcy is the problem. 
This world has so normalized addiction and dysfunctionality that we have no incentive to hide them, avoid them, or confront them. And if you want to be healthy, you got to opt out of the normal. And you got to say, I'm not here to fit into society. I'm here to contribute to society. And that means I have to say no to society's madness if I want to stop doing things that compromise my usefulness. All right, that's really good. I, I would add to, uh, to that, uh, and uh, I love the MRI because it, uh, the MRI don't lie and the MRI don't let you lie. And so if you have addictions, you know, looking at something objectively like um, a digital imagery capability like uh, MRI provides, allows you to see visceral fat accumulating you, dangerous deep subcutaneous fat, and these fatty infiltrates we talked a little bit about inside the muscles that are leading to a huge form of chronic disease called sarcopenia. Mm. So an MRI gives you this magic looking glass uh, for you to challenge the beliefs that you have that maybe, you know, you're not as healthy as you are, uh, think, think you are. And I've had clients literally uh, pass out on me, go unconscious uh, when they see the reality of what's inside their body. Because oh, uh, they were able disease. to hide it for so long. Previously. Yeah. And now, you were yeah. talking about this earlier, TK. Like when we were looking at this, these two pictures of Dr. Sean here, and you notice like when he is, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years younger, he is dressed in a suit. If I describe a picture of two people and I say, <laughs> one man is dressed in a suit and he looks very professional. The other guy is a guy almost 60 years old in a t-shirt. And you get these very these images and then boom, you 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 look at and Daniel put these up on the screen here, but you look at it and you're like, oh wait a minute. No, as you become healthier, other things start to change. Mm. You didn't do this change as an aesthetic change solely. No. But the aesthetics behind it, I mean, no question, right? Like when you look at Dr. Sean, a 60-year-old man, most 60-year-olds don't look like this. They're either obese or they're sarcopenic or both. And, and you're the, a paragon of health and yeah. a person that I aspire to be like at age 42, <laughs> let alone at age 60. Yeah, a really good point I didn't make is that it's really our biological software that uh, how you look and how you perform is important. And the reason why that's important to the average species, uh, member of our species is that we want to live better. And throughout the, our human existence, we would look at older men and women uh, in particular. And if they look good and performed well, our brains would tell us, pay attention to them because they can help us live better. And so what's happening, my generation, when we were younger, we, would, we valued the elderly because uh, they didn't have, uh, they were older. Um, but today, the younger generation don't value the elderly. It's not their fault. The elderly today are riddled with such chronic disease that when those young eyes and those younger boys and girls look at those elderly people afflicted with all the disease, their brains tell them just the opposite. Disregard this one because he or she does not know how to live well and they can't help me. Now, it's not a conscious thought. It's software that's imprinting that has been passed down through us in, in ancestrally. But you want to have that kind of awareness because if you're listening today, you want to have that kind of a, a insight uh, so that your younger generations are going to be coming after your grandkids and great-grandkids are going to pay attention to you. And if you own your own company, you do consulting, you work with clients, you're a, a social media influencer, then the healthier you look, 
and the healthier you perform, the more effective you're going to be at influencing your audience, your clients, and the people that you provide services to. So really, really is important how you look and people are going to pay more attention, follow you and adopt your recommendations if you look better and perform better. Yeah. I think about my daughter when she is hanging out with other kids and I see the parents of other kids. It tells me a lot about the future of that kid. Oh yeah. And so you are right away identifying what dysfunction or disease that child is going to be exposed to repeatedly and it becomes normalized. And in a sick society, the average person is sick. In a dysfunctional society, the average person is dysfunctional. It doesn't mean you're wrong or bad or evil or immoral. It means you've been programmed by a culture, by a society that normalizes all of the things that make us sick, normalizes the processed foods, normalizes the sedentary nature, the ridiculous amounts of sitting and lack of exercise. We've normalized dis-ease and no wonder we feel so crappy every day. Exactly. Can I talk to you about MRIs real quick as we wrap this up here? Sure. Practically, if I'm someone who lives in Southern California or I live in Michigan or I live in New York State or I live in Zimbabwe, wherever I am, because 51% of our audience is worldwide, 191 countries listen to this podcast, and I can't make it to Minnesota to see Dr. Sean to get an MRI, although, folks, that is an option. You just go to drseanomera.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. That's an option. You can work with him, but... The barrier of entry there is you have to be willing to to travel to Minnesota because you're that's where you're a licensed medical doctor. However, if I'm here in Southern California, what do I even do to get an MRI to understand my visceral fat? Because you're the first doctor who has ever told me anything about visceral fat. Where do yeah. I go? Yeah, really, really great question. So you need a physician to order an MRI. But the problem is just today I had a follower who got an MRI and very expensive and nobody can interpret it because no doctors are trained to do it. So I have YouTube videos how to interpret your own MRI because doctors can't. They don't interpret it. So as long as you get yourself educated, you can interpret it about visceral fat. You can interpret it with uh, fatty infiltrates within your muscles and deep subcutaneous fat for for the benefit. But you got to start with uh, talking your physician into ordering it. You got to do a cash payment. No way will insurance pay for it. Uh, Something's going to optimize you. They're they're not going to be paying for that. And so hmm. you you got to start to do that. And if you're outside the country uh, internationally, I can work with you. Um, it's just the boards of medicines in the states within the United States um, prevent me from interpreting it in another state other than Minnesota. But internationally, I do work with uh, followers over the world. I have people flying in from Australia and Singapore and Europe uh, come all the way to get these MRIs. But I also work with people internationally that aren't able to fly uh, into me to help them. And I'm training about um, 12 doctors right now how to uh, read visceral fat, become educated about it. And if, with a little luck, maybe we can uh, uh, we can get this into curriculums of uh, medical schools and start treating, um, training and mass uh, the physicians of the future about this uh, really important biomarker that's aligned with truly helping people getting healthy instead of just treating disease. Mm. As we wrap this up, I want to do a talk aboutable segment with Dr. Sean here because I thought this one was perfect for you. This is the perfect visual metaphor for the crap that we put in our bodies. Take a look at this video over here.
Wow. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Is that so, a toilet bowl that they served it in? It's a toilet bowl filled with chocolate ice cream, but what a metaphor. We're yeah. constantly putting crap into yeah. our bodies. And it's That's no great. wonder that we feel so crappy all yeah. the time because that's what we're doing. And when you just change the container that it's in, you begin to realize like, wait a minute. Yeah. This ice cream isn't going to nourish me the way that it tastes. It tastes really good. It's hypercaloric, but it isn't giving me all the nutrients that my body needs to thrive. Yeah, no, that's a really good uh, illustration. It's, it's uh, removing the uh, veneer of uh, acceptability and normalcy um, that's attended to it and and uh, exposing people to the reality of what they're really doing. So um, I think if more people had that kind of an insight and awareness about those foods, how harmful and what they really are amounting to, um, I think they would uh, be. It would be challenging their uh, their acceptance of it in their lives. And uh, boy, if we could just getting people, just get people to eat more healthy, um, even you know beyond ever exercising, doing all the other things that I have my clients doing to optimize their health, uh, we could really slay, in my opinion. Uh, the biggest problem of humanity, which is chronic disease, because nothing, I say it's the biggest problem of humanity, nobody ever talks about it. Nothing kills more people. Nothing costs us more money. Nothing decreases human productivity more. And uh, nothing decreases the quality of life more than chronic disease. And we're completely um, oblivious to it. Nobody talks about the biggest problem of humanity. And uh, it really, the first step is uh, just... Uh, eating uh, in a healthy way, specific, you know, more aligned with our species ancestrally and living lives that are more aligned with a healthier lifestyle. And we could end the biggest problem of humanity, chronic disease. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Sean O'Mara. <laughs> wow. You can check him out. We'll put a link to his website in the show notes over at theminimalists.com. Also, uh, his Instagram and YouTube will have links to those as well. You mentioned filtering water. One of the best decisions I ever made at home is to have a reverse osmosis filter. You can do the countertop ones. I have one that is installed underneath the sink as well, and I remineralize it with some um, just some electrolytes that are helpful, but drinking spring water as opposed to the tap water. Our audience is really familiar with EWG.org. Are you familiar yeah. with? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So EWG.org slash tap water. If you want to see all of the toxins and contaminants that are in your drinking water, you will immediately find an alternative source, whether it's <laughs> however you want to filter out the water. Reverse osmosis has been the thing that's worked best for me. I'll put a link to the reverse osmosis that I use at home. There's also a great countertop one that you can purchase. They're relatively inexpensive for the amount of water that I drink. 
we're talking less than a penny a glass at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely want to be drinking healthy water. What a, what a critical, critically important strategy for life. Dr. Sean, thank you so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, Joshua and TK, thank, thank you all thank very, you, yeah. very much for having me. All right, y'all, that is our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Love and light, my friends. Take care. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.